wonderful time of the year? Not always. The holidays can be hard, but there's help. Get coping tips at 988baltimore.org. Banking with Arundel Federal Savings Bank means so much more than you think. Your money stays in the local community. It helps everyone grow and prosper. From a young couple moving into their first ever home to a growing family getting the bigger house they need. What else would you expect from one of the best community-minded banks in all of Maryland? Visit ArundelFederal.com for current rates and special offers and help keep it local. Member FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom and this week we're uh, welcoming back in our friend Ajit from India. He's going to talk to us about Hinduism and also mystical Hinduism, two things that I know very little about. So before we get started, I just want to say Hey, Ajit, how are you? Good evening. I guess it's nighttime where you are. And uh, thanks yep. for coming back in. And uh, good morning to you and good day to everybody who's going to be listening to this podcast. It's wonderful to be back again and uh, see you, Jeff. Great. Thank you for that. Um, for those who don't know Ajit, he was our guest on a prior show on the Vedas and the Vedic uh, history. So check out that show. It's a very popular episode. Um, and, uh, I think you'll enjoy it. I do want to follow up on something from a show a few weeks ago that with professor Michael York, I asked him a couple of questions about, uh, the country where he resides and he wasn't really sure about the answer, but he looked it up and followed up with me. So I, I'm going to put it out there into the ether so that we know. So we were talking about 
the origin of the, the country Holland, because there is no tribe, the, the holes or the halls. Um, and literally in Old English, Holland means woodland. So that was the origins. We also talked about Jutland, which is now Denmark, and we were wondering uh, if that was because of uh, a tribe called the Jutes or because it jumped out or both. And in fact, it is a tribe called the Jutes. But as far as the Jut or Jute out, he wasn't sure. So he looked into it and um, it, it may be one of those strange coincidences in, in land but uh, or in history. But Jut uh, is the deduced form of Jet in the 1400s, like a jetty, um, uh, which is sort of like a, a natural uh, dock. So it juts out into the water. Um, it's derived from the French jeter, meaning to throw. Uh, Jutland is the land of the Jutes uh, and has a separate Germanic origin. Um, and there's some other pieces on it, but it is a coincidence that it does in fact jut out and was the land of the Jutes. Uh, but as we found out on uh, another recent episode of Garden of Doom, uh, Hungary, it, it turns out, is not named after the Huns, even though it was one of their westernmost uh, encampments and uh, capitals, if you do call a capital for a basically nomadic steppe people. So there are all these strange coincidences in history. Um, that out of the way, we're going to move back over east, someplace where the Huns did cross uh, probably for a long time. And we're going back to India. So uh, that diversion aside, we're back on track. And Ajit, I, I leave it in your able hands. Lovely, lovely. So yeah, I'm 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 very happy to be a part of this, and you know, to be able to share uh, little nuggets from whatever I've learned in my lifetime. Um, again, the same disclaimer that I had in the previous show with uh, Jeff. Um, I am neither a scholar nor a proponent of Hinduism philosophy or its tenets. I am a keen observer, a keen seeker, and I wish um, that all the knowledge that I hope to dissipate in this conversation um, would be uh, considered in that perspective. Over to you, Jeff. Absolutely. No, I, I think uh, I think the term that people use here uh, in, in the West for this is independent researcher. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It sounds very formal, but yeah, no, well, fair enough. We got that disclaimer and you gave the same disclaimer uh, last episode and uh, you seem like a pretty big authority on it afterwards. You uh, knew uh, you know, chapter and verse. So yeah, let, 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 let's see what you got. Anyway, this is a, this is a 101 to 201 type of show. Anyway, sometimes we obviously dive deeper because the experts uh, and guests are often deeper, but that is not required. This is, this is a, Primer or primer, I'm never sure how to pronounce that word, uh, so that uh, the, the person who has no knowledge of this or just, uh, you know, some basic interests or curiosity, um, you know, can grasp it. So I, with your disclaimer embraced, I fully trust you to dazzle us. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. So I guess, so Hinduism, huh? Um so one of the things about Hinduism, uh, you know, one of the strange things that I learned is I, I thought that 
Buddhism and Hinduism, like I often got them confused, especially when I learned that Siddhartha was Indian and, and Buddhism started in India, but it sort of got more popular over time and, and moved further east um, into, uh, you know, well, China is probably the most famous Buddhist country, the largest anyway. Um, uh, and and then came Hindu Hinduism and yeah, I've listened to podcasts and read some books and whatever, and, and they seem to be fairly similar. Professor York referred to them as Dharmic religions. I didn't follow up with him on what that meant because the show had so much other content and that wasn't really the topic. And I knew that I was talking to you. So I don't maybe start with, if you know, what what's a Dharmic religion? Sure, sure. So, um, um, you know, just, just to get started, Hinduism is a way of life it it's never considered a religion by the western definition of it right um in fact the supreme court of india also has ruled that in in a 1995 judgment that you know hinduism is a way of life and should not be kind of bracketed as a religion right um uh basically the 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 connotation um that professor york would have used is dharmic religion just uh, for a Western audience that is used to um, looking at everything from a religion perspective, right? There are these Abrahamic religions and therefore the other religions that we are not familiar with, let us kind of define those religions in the way that we are comfortable with. That's what the West did uh, during the colonial era and all that, right? So Dharmic actually is a Sanskrit word. Dharmic means anything to do with dharma, right? And dharma is basically the tenets or the rules or the ways of life, right? So we Indians, we believe that Hindu is a dharma. Hindu is not a religion, right? Because, uh, you know, there is a subtle difference between religion and dharma. Dharma is tenets, a way of life, the rules of living, um, you know, civilization as they say, right? And religion is more like uh, what is preached to you. There is a single person up there who's looking upon you and you've got to go by the gospel or whatever the holy books teach you, right? It's a, it's a one-way path towards realization of God. Hinduism is a multifold path towards realization of the Supreme. Okay. That is, you know, the basic difference between dharma and uh, religion. And just on the note of Buddhism that you spoke about, so Siddhartha was a Hindu and Hinduism is the oldest known way of life or civilizational edict or religion, whatever you want to call it, right? And we call it the Sanatana Dharma, S-A-N-A-T-A-N-A. Sanatana in Sanskrit means endless, it's infinite. So there's no beginning, no end. And therefore, we don't know the origins of this particular way of life, right? Uh, we can quote from the Vedas and the original scriptures and stuff, but even they say that this is timeless. So, right? So mm -hmm. that it, it goes to a pre-cosmic or, um, you know, a pre-civilizational time, if I may, right? I mean, Australians call it the dream time. Um, I think this is somewhere beyond that, right? Okay. So with Buddhism, um, Siddhartha had some issues with the way the Hindu way of life was being dealt with at that point in time. He was a prince, he was a royal, right? He gave up all the royalty of the Hindu kingdom and 
you know, went about his own mission of realizing the nirvana or the enlightenment, right? And in Buddhism, dharma is kind of transformed into another word called dhamma, D-H-A-M-M-A, right? So there's a subtle difference. And that's, that's basically one of the reasons why I think Buddhism spread beyond India um, uh, because uh, the civilizations beyond India didn't have this kind of a, a storytelling or a, a, a cultural perspective, um, right? So I think that's the reason it's it's spread uh, far and wide. Of course, Indian kings and royalty, like uh, you know King Ashoka, they helped the um, the uh, propagation of that particular religion. You know, so and by the way, uh, Buddhism is called a religion, but in the Indian constitution. Buddhism, Jainism, and uh, Sikhism, they are all part of the Hinduism way of life. They are considered as one. Right? Do Buddhists consider themselves part of that? And do Buddhists consider Buddhism a religion or more of a philosophy? Uh, so there are two kinds of uh, Buddhists. The uh, <coughs> you know One of them is uh, called the Hinayana sect, and the other one is the Mahayana sect. Right? And... Uh, both of them have different beliefs in their origins, right? Um, the former, if I'm not wrong, the Hinayana sect believe that they are descendant of, uh, you know, Hindus. I mean, they, they kind of came from there. And the Mahayana Buddhists, they say that we are vastly different from what Hinduism uh, preaches or practices, and therefore we should consider ourselves as a different entity. So, you know, these debates are endless and to a large extent, when we are talking about philosophy and uh, society, I think these are futile in terms of uh, what it means to individuals. It's, it's a practice that has been going on for thousands of years. time of the year? Not always. The holidays can be hard, but there's help. Get coping tips at 988baltimore.org. And um, it, it's a marvel that we all continue to exist in the, uh, you know, in the multitude of this particular society. Well, well, it sounds like in both cases and probably more the, you know, the other, uh, I guess, um, branches of of both uh, tenants um we're just trying to put a western label on it when we call it religion because it doesn't sound like uh, a lot of the eastern philosophies that we call religions are really exactly religions i mean as, as you made clear in the in the vedic show that's not religion that's history um you, you consider it history um and i i you know and just recently in two cases i heard somebody talk about uh that they're you know, seemingly was a nuclear war 8,000 years ago or 8,000 BC in Rajasthan, I think that was the name? Yeah, Haryana. Kurukshetra was the name. Right. And you, uh, you mentioned that on the show as well. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in Buddhism, you know, I, I haven't had a show formally on Buddhism, but I have had on Chinese uh, mythology and magic, and which are one and the same. And, and it's the same thing. They're, they're the the the, those are the those are still the religion. That's still the God. The, you know, philosophy and religion is often hard to separate. Anyhow, 
but the, the Buddhism is almost supplemental, doesn't replace the Jade Emperor, so to speak. So anyway, it's interesting you point that out. And it's, you know, it's, I say it out loud because I, I figure most of my audience is Western, though India is in the top five or six countries of listeners. Um, but most of the audience is Western. And maybe if I struggle through it and try to separate the two and, and make that leap, it'll be easier for others to do the same as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's 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 time that there is a, a, a narrative that is a, a showcased that is more of a, uh, uh, you know, acceptable and tenable to the West, so that a lot of these myths and uh, misconceptions um, get dissolved once and for all. And we look forward to, uh, you know, having a, a more unified and a more, uh, uh, you know, inclusive and diverse kind of uh, narratives uh, for the world to uh, consume. Okay, so I guess let's start with Hinduism 101. I'm sure Hinduism, like like every other great belief system has, you know, multiple branches. Uh, but, you know, to, to keep it simple, maybe we should just stick with the most popular, most prevalent or agreed upon common principles. And then whenever you're ready, just let us know and you can uh, turn us in, off into the off ramp or on ramp uh, onto the more mystical aspects. Sure, sure. So, yeah, as you said, you know, there are multiple threads here. Uh, as I said, Hinduism always believes in multiple ways towards reaching the Supreme or realizing the Supreme, right? Um, I don't use the word God because that has a very, uh, you know, a Western connotation is different from the East. So, uh, for example, Hinduism, we have a pantheon of 33 million gods. It's a lot right? of gods. Lots. So, um, you know, in India, every family has their own deity that they worship. And they, of course, worship other deities as well. But it's... It's, it's a unique facet that we are able to have these uh, multiple, um, you know, ways of looking at the Supreme and addressing multiple uh, facets of the Supreme through a human iconographic deities, right? Does uh, that, what they call as worshipping. Can I ask you a, question, no. a couple questions, actually? Does the 33 million number ever change or because it's cyclical, even if that particular god dies in their timeline or whatever, do do they get reincarnated so that the population stays steady at thirty three million? <laughs> so um, <laughs> that's a, that's a cool one. That's a good one actually. Um, so okay, there are um, two aspects here. The number is uh, thirty three million as per uh, Sanskrit shloka, right? We just call it Koti. Koti is uh, um, a, a numeral that has million as its equivalent in the West, right? So when we say um, 33 Koti in Sanskrit, it actually translates to 33 million, right? Um, each of these 33 is not a humanic, um, you know, um, what do you say, humanic um, form. Right. Mm -hmm. Each of these 33 is an elemental form that we call as Tattva. So, you know, we are full of it, right? Uh, like we breathe air and we, you know, we are listening to each other through ether, you know, those kind of Tattvas, they all become represented as God. So that, you know, there is, there is a way to learn about these facets 
beyond the subliminal and look at them as actuals, right? So basically 33 or 33 million, these are all the elements in the universe that are there. I won't say elements, um, I will say facets in the universe, right? That are represented by a personified um, God, you know, in terms of iconography. That's how we look at it. So, and that's why, you know, when we worship uh, gods, we don't worship one god for a certain thing and another god for a certain thing, you know. Like you, in the previous um, uh, podcast, you had spoken about the elephant god and I told you what the history of that elephant god is, right? So, we worship him for certain things and we worship Lord Shiva for something else, Vishnu for something else, Krishna for something else. And when I say something else, it's not a need. It's more like it's what attracts you the most. You know, which of these gods resonate within you, right? And therefore, which of those 33 million principles resonate more inside of you? I think that's how that whole pantheon needs to be looked at and not necessarily as a human population that is going to be immortal because these are elements that are immortal. They have beyond us and they will continue to exist beyond humanity and beyond the climate change catastrophe that is coming, (laughs) you know? So the 33 million comes from Sanskrit. So I'm assuming that this is very ancient. Do we have any idea when the 33 million number was arrived at? Uh, at least 5,000 to 6,000 years back. Okay. At so least. The reason is, is that, I mean, whenever I hear 33 on this show or other common numbers, you know, it, it makes you think and... When something is older, I mean, 33 is a very specific number and, you know, and, and yeah. you know, it, it's not lost to me that, you know, 33 is associated with the age of Christ's death. And, and that's been tied to, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, a longitude on the on the earth or, you know, the, the Masonic order or whatever. I'm wondering if maybe right. this, that 33, the Hindu 33 is maybe the origin of that 33 that was sort of borrowed, but that, that's just, that's just rank speculation. Nice. Well, <laughs> I, I like the connections that you make here. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's like the child mind that absorbs a lot and sees connections all time. And every now and then they, they you know, from the mouth, I'm just a middle-aged babe, but from the mouth of, mouth of babes and by babes, I mean a, a young child, not like, you know, uh, not like a 70s guy looking at an attractive woman going, hey, babe. <laughs> <laughs> right. Got it. Got it. All right. I'm sorry to have taken you off of that. But yeah. Uh, so, okay. So, yeah. So, uh, that was the 33 million um, um, sign, um, you know. So, we have a huge pantheon, as I was saying, and it's an endless, infinite loop of um, the different ways of realizing the Supreme, right? So, I, I'll, I'll give you a small example where... I think it becomes a bit of mystical thing also, right? So if you consider Nataraja, which is a very, very popular iconography in the West also, right? That's that cosmic dance of Shiva, as it's called. And, um, you know, at the at the, um, at the the um, Large Hadron Collider, the LXC project in Switzerland, they have this huge Nataraja statue in the front, you know, denoting it as a cosmic dance of Shiva and all that. So that Nataraja iconography has a very, very um, significant aspect in terms of uh, mysticism, right? Um, the Nataraja idol is a, 
is a symbolic representation of the Orion constellation. Right? So, as above, so below. It becomes very clear. Right? So, there is a temple dedicated to the Lord in the southern state of uh, Tamil Nadu and the place is called Chidambaram. Chidambaram stands for Chit and Ambaram. Chit is, you know, your sense, your intellect, your mind and Ambaram is the sky. So, the sky or space or whatever, however you want to address it. So, Nataraja is a personification of the element ether, right? One of the five elements, right? And it's it's very interesting when you go to that temple, in, in you know, the temple that I was speaking about, the iconography of the Lord and the metaphysics of the Lord. Metaphysics in the sense, what does the Lord represent? What does his vehicle represent? What is the directional significance of his existence and stuff like that, right? All of that metaphysics is built in into that temple complex, right? So, for example, um, uh, ether is the uh, throat chakra, um, you know, representation, right? And throat chakra is uh, all about voice and expression, right? So, music and dance become a very, very innate form of expression since, um, you know, since time immemorial, right? Mm -hmm. Nataraja and the entire temple is dedicated to the music and dance forms of uh, the complete um, South India. It's called Bharatanatyam, the dance form. It's got all the 108 poses of that dance form etched inside the temple, right? So there's a very cool, you know, correlation between the element, the chakra, and what it helps you to express in a physical form, right? Now, that is the depth of knowledge or the know-how that our ancients had, that they were able to translate something that is very, very esoteric into something that is absolutely physically tangible and understandable to the common uh, man or woman, right? So, for me, these elements of Hinduism are... Um, I don't know. I mean, they seem to be unprecedented in other religions or communities in the world, right? Um, we always struggle with understanding the metaphysics. We always struggle with understanding the esoteric. We kind of uh, give it a wash, you know. We just say, oh man, this is like, you know, this is too deep. I, I cannot concentrate. Just imagine translating that to a temple complex where you get to learn about it, you feel it, you consume it, and you are actually a transformed person at the, at the end of it, right? So, I wanted to bring that in as an iconography example. One of the 33 million is this um, Shiva and his throat chakra, um, you know, element, right? Um, I feel that is um, extremely fabulous. And the link with the Orion constellation is that um, at the winter solstice or around that time, the constellation is right above this particular temple complex, right uh -huh. above. All right. So the deity inside and the constellation above is representing the same thing, as above, so below. Mm -hmm. So I find these things very fascinating. And they have taken um, the secession uh, cycles also, the, the precession cycles, and not the secession, the precession cycles of, you know, once in, um, you know, 26,920 or 12,000,000.
of the year? Not always. The holidays can be hard, but there's help. Get coping tips at 988baltimore.org. Banking with Arundel Federal Savings Bank means so much more than you think. Your money stays in the local community. It helps everyone grow and prosper. From a young couple moving into their first ever home to a growing family getting the bigger house they need. What else would you expect from one of the best community-minded banks in all of Maryland? Visit ArundelFederal.com for current rates and special offers and help keep it local. Member FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. 960 years, right? There is a, a longitudinal shift of the earth, right? right? Which kind of changes the axis, right? They've taken account of that also so that the axis of the deity and the constellation remains the same. Now that's phenomenal astronomy for you, you know, thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. Which means that people had to know about it tens of thousands of years ago tens to track it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that is the depth that humanity has had. And I, I frequently call the modern civilization as the most primitive. You know, because we mm-hmm. don't know these aspects. We're yeah. struggling to understand what climate change has in store for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know? we in a lot of ways we have gotten dumber. I mean, there was a time, and you know, in, in my memory, where I knew what every street was and how to get everywhere. Now, uh, without my GPS, I'm, I'm not sure that I could get more than five miles from from where I want to go. I mean, I could get okay. I I could get across the country because I can find I seventy or I eighty. Uh, but but you know, I'm not sure that I could find a movie theater four towns over without GPS. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's cool or not. It just is. But uh, I think yeah, it, it's amazing what so many ancient civilizations knew about astronomy. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the, the procession, the, the calendars that they created and the timelines, you know, it, it, this isn't just something that happens once and then someone goes, oh, yeah, I, I remember great grandpa talked about that 12,000 years ago. No, there was no great. So people had to be tracking this for generations and generations. I mean, hundreds of generations. And and and, and they, I mean, I guess you'd have to pass it along from, you know, parent to child, parent to child, teacher to student, teacher to student. So everyone knew exactly what to look for. And, and, and it takes a while to figure out what you're looking for. Um, so uh, I don't know. It's it's that's mind boggling to me. That that's more mind boggling to me than than you know, you die, your spirit or your soul goes back and comes back into another life. That I mean, that's a concept I can un, I can get that concept. Uh, I, the the real world stuff to me is well, I already said it's it. Mind boggling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In fact, in, in, in the North American, uh, you know, the Hopi tribe, the Hopi Native American tribe, mm-hmm. uh, they had created um, seven villages, if I'm not wrong. Okay, seven villages in different parts of one particular state or two states of the uh, USA. Right? And the, the skyward photo of that particular seven villages, if it's zoomed out, it is in the shape of the Orion constellation. Oh wow, um, that's that's crazy. Okay, that's the well. There you go again. As above, so as below, and we you see that time and time again. Um, and you know what? It didn't strike me until this show that Orion 
Well, there you go. You got the three. You got the line. You have two stars up. You have two stars yeah. down. It's. A, <laughs> I mean, it's it's right. No no wonder it's so uh, prevalent. Aside from the fact that it also you know basically points to the Big Dipper or Ursa Major, which points to the North Star, which uh, is is a you know it, like a nice little map up there in the sky that that would be a central point for I, I guess for exactly. everyone right. between the tropics, right? And at the bottom of it, it's the Sirius star, and at the top of it, it's the Pleiades constellation, right? I mean, it points towards the Pleiades in the end. Yeah. So it's a huge cosmic story, yes. Very good. Yeah, it's 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 all tied together, which is very interesting. And uh, yeah, and we had uh, we we've had a couple of shows on astrology, actually, probably accidentally three. One that's called astrology, and and I think all of them helped to understand this a little bit, but. All the shows seem to have some astrological um, or astronomical counterpart in them, including this one right here. So, all right, I'm, I'm going to try to stop my little musings and uh, let you continue. No, uh, I think I, I had that to say about the mystical aspects of our uh, Hinduism and how, you know, that gets translated in some, into something that is tangible and consumable by the public. So I just wanted to make that. Absolutely, yeah. And this is, I mean, astrology is a is a way to translate it to the public because everybody looks up and sees the same sky, at least where they are. I mean, obviously, you see a different sky in the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. Yeah. You know, now because of pollution, it could be different. You know, if, if, over over miles. But uh, I have a garden views that uh, came out recently on light pollution. Uh, from a space lawyer, who, and, and that's her cause, and that's a little cheap plug, but it is related to uh, sort of what, what we've done in modernity to impact our view of the skies and its impact on the Earth, and not just people, but also animals, especially nocturnal migratory animals. But again, cheap plug, garden views, look for that. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, sorry about that. So, uh, I, you know, I'm at your mercy. I, I don't know if you want to continue with the mysticism or you want to jump back to the tenets or if it's even divisible. I, maybe they're one and the same. Yeah, um, I think, uh, um, um, you know, more on the mysticism uh, in, in terms of temples, I think we, we just uh, glanced at it. We just, I mean, I just gave a cursory, uh, you know, trailer kind of a thing. Um, and also uh, the fact is, uh, a lot of um, Hinduism is has evolved with time. You know, we are not a hard-pressed uh, bunch of people who say that this is right and that is wrong. Right? Um, we have evolved over time. We have evolved with time, with the compulsions of those times. And, you know, it's been a very, very broad-based um, democratic approach in the sense that we had the people involved in, in, in alternating or in altering the status quo from one phase to the other. And like I said, it takes time, but it's, it's, it's happened seamlessly, right? I mean, we are the only, um, country that has not invaded any other country for, you know, um, you know, in terms of conquests or in terms of conversions or whatever it is, right? So imagine that across eons, let's say around 5,000 to 10,000 years or even more, this has just gone on in an unparalleled way 
with a community of people that is like you said you know you are transmitting knowledge from generation to generation not in a written manner but in an oral way right and that's the that's the problem with the dating mechanism that we have today right there are no written proofs of these uh, the existence of these uh, which don't date back beyond let's say 4000 or 5000 bc that doesn't mean to say that they did not exist before that right and because we are a, 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 a oral transmission uh, community and i'm not using the religion word here you know we whenever i say community just think of it as the entire hinduism right we are an oral generation you know spreading the word of uh, vedas and teaching vedas from one generation to the other generation only through oral mechanisms right there's no written uh, content right that has gone on seamlessly for aeons right now the secret to that is 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 perplexing um it it seems that a lot of these um, chants or the shlokas that we call it right the the mantras that you hear so much about mm-hmm. these mantras are codified meanings at multiple levels of of existence of human knowledge or existence right also the idea was not to dilute the transmission of knowledge from one generation to the other you know let me take a a, a very uh, contemporary example you know are we i am into software engineering you know the client gives us a requirement we understand the requirement in a different way in spite of having it written right and we create something that is not exactly what the client had in mind right, right? so this happens you know lost in translation right now in the case of oral transmission of that knowledge there was no loss of transmission there was no loss of any information the reason behind that is every chant and mantra was codified in eight or nine different methods right and we call this as the veda patha v e d a p a t h a veda patha means the the um, um the telling of the vedas the chanting of the vedas or the learning of the vedas however you want to look at it right, right? so there are different ways of um reciting the same chant right where the syllables are jumbled up or the syllables are repetitive or the syllables are counted for one or three and then the shloka is completed right so each of these ways of reciting is a way of ensuring that you are learning the shloka in the right way in the right sonorific form right so that the sounding is perfect and at the same time you are also ensuring that that particular piece of data or the code gets transmitted to the next generation as it is so you know think of it as like a, a 24 bit encryption or a 32 bit encryption that cannot change your security key will not change this is that security layer right this ensured that across 10000 years we haven't lost any information that we received that for me is a phenomenal um act of human intellect and prowess am i correct that that what you're referring to is basically the storytelling telling of the teacher to the student in the form of i think it's Krishna talking to is it Arjuna? Uh no that that is much much later 
Okay. Much, much later. I'm, I'm talking about aeons before that, where oh. the Vedas were kind of distributed orally. See, when the Mahabharata happened, the writing had resumed. Right? In fact, the author of Mahabharata is Vedavyas, who I spoke about in the previous uh, podcast, right? So he actually writes it. Or he makes Lord Ganesha write it, you know, as, as, as per the stories and stuff like that. So writing had started by the time Mahabharata was around, right? I am talking about the transmission of knowledge at least, um, you know, 5,000 years before that. Way earlier. Right? Way earlier, where there was no writing system. But the efficacy of the oral transmission of knowledge was unparalleled. I mean, just imagine you and me talking to each other and you ensure that whatever you have in your mind and you're dissipating it to me, I take it 100% verbatim and I am able to give it back again to somebody else. That is the kind of system that was established. It was called the Gurukul system. All of the Hinduism knowledge was transmitted this way, right? Nowadays, we call it the Indic knowledge systems. IKS is the acronym. You can look it up on Google. Um, this is the basis of the Indic knowledge systems. Everything was orally transmitted, 100% accuracy, no leakage of data, no lost in translation. I mean, beat that with today's systems. I'm not even going to try. I, I'm trying to translate this like a, to, like I guess, like music. Like uh, you have, uh, you know, rappers. They, 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 you know, they, they will know every word in the catalog of their music might be thousands of thousands of songs and uh, and they can do it and and probably so can their thousands of fans uh you know and, and get every word correct because it's in certain patterns uh, and but then if you hear it in acoustics or a cover song it may take you a second but then you're gonna go i know that and and so I guess what you're saying, there's so many different patterns of the same message, but you're always hearing the same message. So you recognize that message, right. you know, exactly. 10 or 12 different ways. Exactly. Very interesting. Right. So imagine the, the creation of such algorithms or such rules. I mean, what depth of knowledge would those guys had that they were able to, you know, kind of create this whole system in the first place, right? That, um, you know, for me is, 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 um, a, a pinnacle of what Hinduism uh, should be spoken for, right? It's not about the gods. It's not about the, um, uh, you know, the kind of wars or battles that were fought, or it's not about the hybrid gods and stuff like that. It's about these underlying systems of thought that catapulted this community to be the longest running, surviving indigenous community in the world. That's amazing, and the and the Indus Valley, uh, which I guess is the origins of India. Um, I mean, every you know, there's a pretty good argument that that it, it might be the the actual first fertile crescent. You know, not not Sumeria, but uh, you know, it's, there's there's a lot of crossover there, and you know, a lot of cultures pass through there both ways. And when I mean pass through, I don't mean like you know they just ran on through it, the, the, these migrations were, you know, centuries. Absolutely, absolutely. And it was a trade route, right? They were trading, uh, you know, between the uh, between the civilizations. So I would say Indus Valley um, is, um, I mean, my thoughts are that it is a parallel Vedic or even uh, a little post-Vedic, uh, you know. Um, 
Um, some people say it could be the pre-Vedic, but I, I kind of, uh, you know, I don't, don't see it because it's, it's not dating back to a, a, a very, very distant past, right? It's still dating back um, to at least during the occurrence of Mahabharata or a little uh, before that. So it cannot define the timeline of a civilization that's uh, timeless. So that said, Indus Valley civilization was a, a very wide civilization. So, um, you know, I am in touch with historians and researchers, as you as you know, right, um, on my startup of Indic heritage and uh, history, right? So it's fascinating to know that the same symbols of the bull and all that that you would have seen in those Indus seals, right, those tablets, they are found as far as Haifa, which is in Israel. Mm-hmm. Right. And they are also um, uh, the boats that were um, unearthed in Egypt, uh, Ayan Sukhna, that is the place, uh, that's the name of the place. They found uh, coir ropes um, in the boats, right? Now, nowhere in Africa or nearby the Mediterranean areas, there is the manufacturing of coir, right? Coir is a jute ridden uh, rope, right? Mm. That comes from the southern state of Kerala in India. And it is still known for it, right? And uh, because the boats, the catamarans or whatever, you know, it was creation of, um, you know, the southern uh, civilization, the southern state of India, um, you know, these things add up so beautifully into that trade route, right? The origin could be from the east to the west, for example, right? So the, the theory goes that the Indus Valley civilization stretched from Hanoi in the east to Haifa in the west. Wow. which is Vietnam today and Israel, right? Now, that is a wide expanse of a civilization that has immense learning, knowledge, commerce, right, to dissipate to the rest of the world. And maybe Sumerians, Egyptians, you know, they kind of learned from that and they broadened their civilizations around it, which is great, right? So, Indus Valley was that particular fertile present, as you said, right, before... Um, uh, you know, the other civilizations came up. Now, interesting thing is, um, there was a research carried out in 1960s, okay, uh, by a person who wanted to find out what are the origin of such uh, rich economics in the in the Bronze Age or pre-Bronze Age, right? Um, his name was uh, Angus Madison. Okay, and he uh, took it upon himself to create this as the world report, you know, from 2000 BC to 2080 or something like that, you know. He created that report. This was launched in 60s. I think it was presented at the United Nations also. Now, his theory was at 1 BCE, which is, you know, before common era or, you know, in the West, it was, I mean, in the earlier um, notions, it was called 1 BC before Christ, right? China and India were the richest economies, right? Contributing 33% of the GDP as we understand it today back then. One third of the world's GDP was across these two countries next to each other. Now the question is, all right, that is at 1 BC, but what made these two nations so rich and commercially so viable that they were actually the largest powers as it may be? It back then, you know, so you to go back in time much before 1 BC, and that is where the Indus Valley civilization comes in because of its rich trade and commerce, 
and the entire tin belt you know what what is bronze age civilization what does it need it needs two periodic elements copper and tin right mm-hmm. it's an alloy right bronze right. is an alloy of copper and tin now the richest tin reserves in the world are in the gangetic plains of india uh, present bangladesh present pakistan and goes down to burma mm-hmm. right and this was the exact trade route that indus valley civilization followed during the bronze age right even today the the tin extracts that are found there are unparalleled in the world right so now we know the secret of how that economy prospered okay and this is the, and the next part that i'm going to talk to you about is where the philosophy comes in which is very very interesting one thing is to prosper become the richest the other thing is to sustain that richness over eons sure. right which as a modern civilization we are like you know we are on the verge of failure there right now what that civilization purported was that i will use whatever i need right i don't have a greed those who want to make use of it please take it right it is called the shady dharma uh in english it can be spelled as s h a d e e right shady dharma is basically common wealth right the wealth is common you share it so that you also grow while i am growing and let this richness flourish many more generations together now that is a very very giving mentality right in spirituality we talk about giving uh and that's when you will be getting right now this was a very very early civilization and the secret behind the richness of the civilization i believe is this spiritual tenet of giving and the 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 absence of greed as an element of uh, civilization so i wanted to talk that as a as a as a part of the indus valley civilization because usually um, anything to do with indus valley civilization starts and stops at the bull and you know all of these there is a there's a deeper meaning to these civilizations we don't look at humanity as a purposeful emotional beings who were there to create something of a legacy that can be talked about generations later and this civilization did just that like many other civilizations it was more communal exactly exactly and if we can pull something like that in today's world i don't think we will be having economies in recession or any uh, riots based on you know low economy background and stuff like that it would be interesting i mean we just crossed 8 billion people so i guess on 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 one side it sounds tough to provide for all of those folks on the other side you know from we must be doing something right or right enough to keep growing uh, i guess um but yeah uh, so the I, I, the bull you know i i wonder that that's the brahma right That's a good question. Um, there are a lot of theories around the bull. Uh, first of all, it's it's a it's a species of bull that is native to India. Okay. It's called uh, the Bas Indicus, B A S Indicus, um, and that bull is a is a symbolism uh, both for the spiritual side as well as for the metallurgical side. When I say metallurgical. you know each of these in gods it is uh, prophesied that these are bills of material for the trade that is happening between the nations right 
So like we send a bill of material along with a courier nowadays, these ingots used to be symbolic of that. And a lot of people believe that the bull is one of the elements of the periodic table that was, you know, uh, part of this whole, uh, you know, uh, theory. Um, another theory talks about the bull being the vehicle of Lord Shiva, right? It's called the Nandi. It's the vehicle of Lord Shiva. So that is also another theory that, you know, it, it kind of aligns with the pre-Vedic or the Vedic deities. I have not about. I have not heard about the Brahma uh, comparison. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about it and let me capture the gist. Uh, all right. Well, I think enough of my listeners know uh, that I have a giant vice that's been in my life for close to fifty years, which is watching professional wrestling. And where do I get the Brahma and the Bull from? The Rock. Dwayne Johnson. Uh, he's got a tattoo on his arm of a bull, and he said it was a Brahmin bull. Uh, so uh, I have always put the connection between Brahma and bull, probably because of him. Where he got it from, I don't know. I don't know if I heard of the reference before, uh, but I'm guessing if Brahma just means sort of like, you know, top dog, king, powerful person that maybe he just took Brahma as powerful and put it with a bowl that looks powerful and put them together. And it may have absolutely no correlation to anything from India, Hindu, Buddhist, East, anywhere. Um, you know, I was going to try and draw correlations to uh, Baal or Baal uh, and then to the Minotaur uh, and, and lots of other, you know, uh, you know, bull uh, references in uh, comparative mythology or proto-mythology. But uh, I think if my starting point is professional wrestling, I'm probably, you know, starting on a pretty shaky ground. So maybe maybe we should just forget about the Brahma and the, and the bull as, as being one, one and the same. <laughs> I love it. Let me look that up now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen. The, the Rock is a very smart man, um, but uh, that doesn't mean he didn't, you know, when he did this, he was, you know, like 23 years old. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, I, I think maybe I'll, I'll, I'll leave the expertise to you. Sure. Um, um, you know, let me read up. I mean, there, there could definitely be some link because, you know, everybody is open to uh, some kind of, um, uh, like you said, making the connects and stuff like that. So, you know, all these are quite... Uh, quite, um, uh, what do you say, uh, surprising? It could also be just one of those things like we just learned with Jutland and, and Hungary, that just one of these coincidences that somewhere else the, a word that sounds like Brahma or is Brahma means something entirely different and is associated with with, with a, a bowl. I mean, it's a big, big world with lots of people and lots of languages. Bring in the new year with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra for their performance of BSO Fusion from Beethoven to Beyonce. Here's Steve Hackman and the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra perform music spanning across all eras, including audience favorites by Lady Gaga, Brahms, Adele, Shostakovich, Bach, and more. The New Year's celebration continues at an exclusive after party in collaboration with Revival Hotel. Join us on Saturday, December 31st at the Meyerhoff. For information and tickets, visit bsomusic.org. That's bsomusic.org. 
Sports fans, the wait is over. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is now live in Maryland. And for a limited time, FanDuel is giving new customers in Maryland $200 in free bets when you use promo code MarylandFD at sign-up. It doesn't matter if you win or lose. Just place your first $5 bet. Then you'll get $200 in free bets guaranteed. With football season in full swing, the timing couldn't be better. Finally, you can bet on all your favorite NFL and college teams with everything from the money line to point spreads to player props. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app with the promo code MarylandFD to get started. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Don't miss your chance to get $200 in free bets guaranteed now that FanDuel is live in Maryland. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. Disclaimer, 21 plus and present in Maryland. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable free bets that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Lots of languages, lots of interpretations because mind is a funny thing. It interprets the way it wants to and you are part of the mind so you will connect to certain things and not connect to certain others. So, yeah. That's right. So uh, as The Rock would ask, Jeff, what do you think? And I would start and he would say, it doesn't matter what I think. So, <laughs> so let's get back. Let's get off The Rock and then let's get, let's get back into actual information. Um, so, okay. So I sidetracked you but you were on the bull um which is or you were on the brahma no you were on the bull and which is probably nothing to do with brahma in hinduism yeah i think uh bull is a is a very very significant um, um animal form for us and as i said it's the uh, it's the vehicle of lord shiva um, you know one of the trinities as they call it apart uh, from vishnu and uh, brahma um, as I said, our trinity has a, a clear mapping to the creation, destruction, and protection, right? preservation, right? Um, and at the same time, each of these trinities, they actually lead to eventual creation and destruction also, right? So they are into multiple role plays, uh, you know, if I can use the present day lingo. Um, so each of them is, is a creator, preserver, and a destroyer in his own right. And each of them has a vehicle like any any um, any gods in uh, Hinduism do. Um, every god has a vehicle, and there is a, a, a very esoteric um, uh, explanation for the vehicle. And at the same time, there is a very granular and a earthly um, explanation for these vehicles. Right? So um, on the bull um, Nandi, as it's called. It was definitely not the original vehicle of Shiva, you know, it was a devotee and uh, there, there is a story which I'm not too sure about and, uh, you know, without being sure, I don't want to be uh, talking about it and, uh, you know, kind of mislead the audience here. Um, but it, it, it was blessed to be the vehicle of Shiva, right? And, um, and the the female form cow is very holy for us very very sacred right and we call it the kamadenu kamadenu means the giver of anything and everything right again that giving is emphasized right um so for us cow is very sacred and it is believed to have within itself a um, lot of treasures tangible and intangible right? so um 
we consider it holy and sacred and uh, you know that's where we have a, a kind of a whiplash moment with the west where you know uh, there, there is a staple food uh, you know the beef basically so um, you know be that as it may now that is the sacredness of the bull and and the cow and the kind of importance that we give to the animals right and that's the other dimension or the beauty of uh, hinduism where we are nature worshipers uh, we believe in um, giving equal stance to all the creatures on this planet and that we are part of the planet and we do not own or run or save the planet you know as it's made out to be today right i mean climate change is not about saving the planet it's saving humanity you know we are selfish enough to you know kind of call it save the planet so i just want to bring that aspect here when we are talking about bull so we worship trees you know there are certain trees that are very very sacred and if you travel to india there will be temples that will be formed around those trees and the tree area would be kind of um, fenced you know that's the sacred holy tree and a lot of these trees would be you know hundreds of years old right so uh, you know we have certain amount of trees that are very very sacred that we worship um, um certain creatures uh, when i say creatures insects or other forms um animals as i said plants right we worship all of these and i think that is a way of coexisting with nature where you uh, bring in a divine element into every creation on this planet and therefore you are not licensed to kill/destroy right in fact in the in the earlier days in ramayana which is the other epic apart from mahabharata which i had spoken to you about in the previous podcast right um there is a way that um the forest dwellers they go to each of these trees and they request their permission to be cut so that they can be made use of uh, you know as firewood or as uh, making a hermitage or whatever it is right so that's the kind of devotion and uh, respect that we had for nature which kind of allowed us to coexist with nature for at least 10000 to 12000 years right and right after the 17th century when the industrial revolution started we are just 300 years into it and we are a disaster civilization right i think so there's a lot to be learned uh, about how um how to educate people uh, on the sameness of these um, you know living beings right so that it works better for the planet Mm-hmm. right like right we are struggling to educate children you know i mean what do we educate children you know don't don't cut trees don't kill animals i mean when was the last time that you were preached to and you agreed it just doesn't happen that way right it just doesn't happen that way everything is a storytelling uh, um, aspect humans love stories we love to identify with other elements of this planet and if you make that sacred or holy I mean that is a very very novel and innovative way of preserving nature and that hinduism did around 10000 12000 years back or even even earlier it's well it sounds similar to a lot of other animisms uh or yes. animistic um 
philosophies, religions, whatever. We're basically using those terms interchangeably at this point. Um, yeah, I remember when I was, I don't know, it was probably freshman year of high school. So I'm probably 14 or 15. So we're, we're, we're four decades ago and learning the, uh, about India and that the, the cow was sacred and people didn't eat meat. They didn't kill cows. And at the time, I think India was going through a lot of uh, hunger and it was just seemed like a strange thing to do that you have, you have cows, which was, a, you know, a source of meat and could feed people. And, you know, and this is America, everything beef is, you know, beef does the body good. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, but of course you couldn't because it, it, it's, you know, been part of the uh, identity of the culture for yep. millennia. I'm and that's a that's a great point you bring in. That's an amazing perspective that you bring in. That you know, even hunger didn't drive us to kill them. I yeah. mean, just imagine the depth of um, feeling and emotions that has been transmitted across how many, at least thirty to forty generations, if not more, right? Also, I'd like to mention here that you know there is research ongoing about the the cattle ranchers and stuff like that, right? I mean, suddenly these things are in the news, right? The global warming, climate change, um, cows, you know, beef. I mean, I I'm sorry if it's a touchy topic for your audience. Um, I'm you know disclaimers right now. I just want to share this piece that um, you know most of the carbon footprint, a large part of it is coming out from the culling of cows right and therefore i am not sure if that is why hinduism made it the most sacred uh, animal form right to avoid this culling and to avoid destruction on the planet i am not sure it's just a, a thought that i have in my head um and it, it seems to add up because otherwise the sudden thing about global warming and climate change uh, I mean, we couldn't have been so bad at our industries that we've actually triggered it. It has to be some other cause. And the food industry seems to be the main cause of all of this. Uh, well, there's there's no denying it's a large part of it. I, I, you know, I, I know a little bit about it, but not enough to be uh, any sort of authority. But I do know that the way modern uh, cattling um, it, it's bad for the soil as well. And then, you know, that's a large part of the climate change. If, if the, you know, not just cows, but, you know, all of the herd animals were permitted to free range, uh, you know, there, there'd probably be a way to balance that much like the uh, First Nations folks did. Um, but, you know, everything is messed. I, you know, I, I am not wagging. I'm not coming on a high horse here by any means. I eat everything. Um, but you know, I, I you know, in America, we're like, oh, people eat dog, they, they eat cats there. Ooh, that's that's gross. Meanwhile, we, we eat veal. That's baby cows. We have baby back ribs. Well, I mean, it, you know that that that's probably from a young pig. You eat lamb chops, you know, which is different than a goat chop or a sheep chop. You know, it's a lamb chop, meaning it's a it's a child because the the meat is is more tender. I mean, you know, we we. We, we, we eat everything. We have chicken wings all over the place. I mean, if you've ever seen a chicken, that's that's not what a chicken wing looks like. The chicken wing looks like the drumstick that, that, that you eat. So, I mean, you know, we we should just, uh, you know, listen, this, this is dawning on me a little bit late in life, but it's never too late, right? Um, but, yes, you know, but we should look down on anyone because they eat 
squirrels or 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 f fried locusts or they you know or or whatever it is you know because you know we, we eat pretty much anything that's out there you know uh, at least at least I know that uh, I do so. Um, uh, I, I don't think it's a targeted thing. You know, on another topic, you brought about Buddhism and all that. You know, the Buddha, the the Buddha Siddhartha, right? Mm -hmm. He um, professed non-violence and um, don't harm animals and other forms of life and stuff like that. And um, right now, you know, if I look at two countries, that is China and Sri Lanka, that is a heavy Buddhist population, right? Um, Sri Lanka, anyway, it's on the verge of the economic collapse, but it was the most violent country till recently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the guys who were practicing Buddhism, they were supposed to be this, you know, saintly and non-violent and stuff like that. They, they chop people and animals and stuff like that. China, I mean, the less said, the better. Um, I don't think they, I think they, they'll consume anything that is, uh, Including human babies, I I hope you know that they the dead fetuses they consume it. Wow, uh, yeah. I, so I did not you know, know that. I talk about Buddhism of that sort, and you kind of get repulsive. So we're 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 all hypocrites in our in our own way, and uh, uh, but this is Garden of Doom. We're not here to solve that. We're just here to understand the doom. Not the not yeah. though. If we if we could solve it, that'd be that'd be swell. I I just don't think that. Uh, that I'm going to be the source of that solution. Maybe, maybe I'll stumble upon the guest that knows everything. Um, okay. Um, all right. So there's a few things about Hinduism that sort of everyone knows about. I think we touched on the, the sacred cow, so I don't think we need to really go on that much, much further. I, I assume that that's sort of, you know, an extension of mother earth. You, you don't kill the earth. The, the you know, the, the cow is, was the source of milk and, you know, you know, you can look back to early times that we, you know, one of the first domesticated animals and, and milk and don't kill, you know, that sort of, that sort of, you know, mother's milk, you know, sort of goes, there's a lot of origin myths where, you know, there's a giant and a mountain or a void and, and salt, but in, in strangely in a few of them from Norse to, I think Chinese and a few others, like there's also like a cow there, a cosmic cow, which I think is a representation of, you know, Mother Earth, that the cow is sort of the representation of Earth before Earth. Uh, the, the, uh, so, so we have the cow. Um, we, one of the other items is reincarnation, uh, which I guess is the cycle. But uh, what is the Hindu interpretation or explanation definition of reincarnation? So the Hindu explanation of reincarnation, very, very interesting, good, good stuff, man. I mean, this is like deep thoughts. <laughs> so, um, so um, um, reincarnation for uh, Hinduism is um, a facet of karma, right? Um, also, it's not limited to just humans, right? Um, there, there are there are instances in our uh, history like Ramayana and Mahabharata that, you know, Mahabharata is full of reincarnation. The guys who are waging the battle, you know, in their previous births, there were some Asuras or Rakshasas, meaning the demonic, uh, you know, uh, beings. And in this birth, they were the pious ones, right? So, um, you know, it's all about 
doing what your duty is and and then reaping the consequences right so this is your platform to do your duties and this is also the platform when i say platform is the earth there is also the platform where you reap the consequences right so uh, you know we have a lot of these tales that you know don't harm lizards or don't kill snakes and stuff like that um because in the next birth even if you're born as a human you might have what is called as a dosha d o s h a which is a uh, a malefic element in your personality right astrologically you know we create those charts and stuff like that there will be a malefic um, um um uh you know aspect of that personality which will have an impact on your present life right so therefore based on your past life uh, actions you bear the consequences in the next life now there are instances where um the human birth is considered the topmost in that evolution cycle or in that um, reincarnation cycle in the sense that you would have been an animal or a creature in your past births and based on pious deeds or you know whatever you done your duty to the best possible extent you get rewarded with this human birth right mm-hmm. now the possibility of going down to uh, animism or uh, you know the animal planet is always there if you don't do deeds according to what uh, you are persuaded to you will end up in a in a inferior life form right so there's not heaven or hell it's just whether or not you uh i guess devolve into a into a lesser life form where you're more vulnerable or you exactly. stay in human form which i guess is tied to karma as being more long term than than yeah. immediate it's a it's a slow moving boomerang um Absolutely. for for better so force yeah i mean it's the earliest form of performance appraisal okay now right. this is is this also tied into the caste system is that tied into hinduism or is that just something that evolves uh in parallel in a parallel course it's part of it it's part of it because hinduism as i said it's all encompassing right everything is part of these uh, the the entire community right so uh, let's say um you know th- this is a fact of life fact of life right you can control everything in the present life except who your ancestors or your parents are right mm-hmm. now abrahamic religions struggle to explain the 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 philosophy or the logic behind this right i mean you know uh, notwithstanding the the belief of reincarnation and all that right so our hinduism says that you will get the family that you so deserve based on the actions that you perform in this birth and therefore there is a chance to evolve or devolve as you said right so uh, uh let's say in the rudimentary thing the upper caste guy this time right there is a high possibility that he can be he or she can be born as an animal in the next life or as a lower uh, lower caste or whatever you know a, a human uh, birth itself but these are all intertwined and these are all interconnected it's it's basically action oriented intent oriented and the outcome is for yourself to bear right 
Now, if we look at the modern systemic approaches, right, we have this system approach where uh, there are three kinds of systems. One is intent-oriented, one is outcome-oriented, and the other one is action-oriented, right? I mean, even our personalities are divided based on that, right? It's the same uh, logic that has been, uh, you know, uh, put into the old reincarnation algorithm, if I can say that, right? So, therefore, reincarnation decides your present based on your past, and it also decides your future based on your past, which includes the present now. So it's a cycle. But is there ever an ascension into like a heaven equivalent or a descent into a hell equivalent? Or is so, it, it's, oh, yeah, you're, so, yes, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the ascension is you dissolve into the supreme, you dissolve into the God form, right? Uh, and that dissolution, uh, when it happens, you realize that you were part of that God form all this while. Right, and that that realization is called moksha or nirvana. Right, even Buddhism has that concept. Right? The same words are used. So, uh, it's not. I mean, we can probably we can uh, look at it that yeah, he's reached a better place, right, which is in the midst of the God form or the supreme form. Uh, is it heaven or hell? Not too sure, because all the consequences that you will bear for every birth of yours, would be on this platform called Earth. Oh, right? It's close enough to heaven that we can, I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be an exact equivalent, but if you've ascended to, to join the, the Godhood Collective, the more, I mean, that, uh, exactly. is there a bad version? Is there a hell version, a demonic collective? Or is you, you serve your penance in, in the cycle on the platform of Earth? You serve your penance in a cyclic form on the planet Earth. There is a demonic world. You know, in our Vedas, there are seven different types of worlds, right? Um, you can loosely translate them to planets or retain them as, uh, you know, multiverses kind of a, a, a philosophy. And one of the worlds is the netherworld. Netherworld as in the underworld or the bad one or the, you know, kind of the demonic one. The lowlands. So, yeah, the lowlands. So each of the human birth, the deciding factor for your next birth would be your actions and you will be placed in any of these worlds, right? Um, so either you dissolve into the supreme form or you kind of relive and uh, become better through these worlds. And the multiverse is that there are different earths, right? It's not like these are different planets. It's not like, you know, uh, the low world is Mercury or Venus and the higher world is Mars and Jupiter. It's not like that. Right. right. It's, it's not like it's, Thor's Asgard where there's nine planets. It's, exactly. it's exactly. like a dimension. It's, it's sort of uh, they're the adjacent. World. Yes. A dimension within the world where we get to, you know, reap the consequences of our actions. Okay. I mean, you, you go to hell. Let's say you go to an accident, right? God mm -hmm. forbid. Right? It's part of that evolution. Right. I mean, this is my this is my way of understanding this whole cycle of uh, birth and death and what you deserve and, uh, you know, what you accomplish. Gotcha. Um, the, I, I don't know how important it is, but what what are the, the casts? I, I think, is there, like, I know that there's, like, 
a, a priestly royal caste, there's a warrior caste, there's a merchant class, and then and then like a worker class. Is is, is that is it four or is there a five classes castes? There are four classes. Four. There are four classes, and I don't know if I can call it caste or class because, um, you know the the modern understanding of any of these systems is that by birth you take it up. Right, you're born into that family, so you become that. Mm-hmm. Right. Originally, in the in the Vedas and in the philosophies, it was never that way. Ah. It was purely based on performance. In fact, some of our rishis or the sages that gave us all these, uh, you know, uh, the Vedas and the shlokas, uh, a lot of them were non-Brahmin by caste, right? Which is the priestly class. They were kshatriyas. A lot of them were the Shudras also, which is the lowest caste, so-called lowest caste, right? It's not a high and low as we see it today in the modern world, right? Um, think of it like, you know, there is a CEO, there's a CTO, there's a CFO, and there are employees with various uh, designations. It is that kind of a system, right? It, it's, it's designed to make handling simpler, right? Now, there is no... A CTO who cannot become the CEO in the same lifetime based on his performance, right? There is no senior engineer or a foreman who cannot dream or aspire to become an owner of a business, right? There's there's nothing that stops him. It's based on his actions and he'll reap the consequences, right? In the same way, the Varna system was designed. Varna is the, the, the loosely called caste system, right? It was purely based on performance. In the same lifetime, you can grow or you can uh, regress, right? With time, it kind of uh, got uh, simplified or diluted into this fact that the moment you're born into a certain caste family, you become that caste, right? Mm-hmm. And it was never, it, therefore, thereafter, it was never performance-based, right? And, you know, slowly we are realizing that as a community that it was um, a, a kind of a, uh, what do you say, a mistake or a fallacy that we, that we, uh, you know, got into, right? And undoing that is the, in the biggest legacy that the present generation can leave behind, is my opinion. Okay. I, I remember when I was, again, I'm, I'm going back to the, I had a very progressive teacher in, in high school and kudos to her. I, I'm afraid I can't even remember her name. Um, but, she was definitely teaching her things that other people in, in public schools in you know, New York were not learning about. But I, I, I remember that, that there was one class called the untouchables. And what you're saying is that, that that's a sort of a gross overstatement. And it's probably, if it's not a Western construct, it's, it's a modern construct. Absolutely. Okay. It was more like everyone was sort of born into a presumed cog in the machine, cog in the wheel, but you could, you could advance. It was a meritocracy. Yes, absolutely. Performance-based Okay. Um, all right. Is there an Indian zodiac that's different than the Western or the Chinese um, or a zodiac at all? I mean, it sounds like there is. time of the year? Not always. The holidays can be hard, but there's help. Get coping tips at 988baltimore.org.
Baltimore is known for its lightning-fast plays. And with Arundel Federal Savings Bank, you can capitalize on that. Make football season more exciting by opening a Goalmaker Savings Account with Arundel Federal Savings Bank. Every time Baltimore scores a passing touchdown during the 2022 season, your interest rate will increase by 0.10%. Now that's real smart banking. Terms and conditions apply. Visit ArundelFederal.com for more info. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. So when you say Zodiac, you mean the 12 signs, right? The Scorpions, Sagittarius, Capricorn, and stuff. Right? So there are 12, even in us, and it's the same same symbology, different names, right? We, the only difference between, I'm not sure about the Chinese Zodiac, the Western Zodiac and the Indian Zodiac, uh, we follow the lunar system. We take moon as the basis of the astrological positions of these uh, So the Zodiacs. Chinese. Yeah. Um, unlike the sun as the center for the western zodiac, right? right? So we call it sun sign. Here we call it moon sign, right? So I think that's a that's a big difference in terms of um, looking at it from an astrological perspective. So um, because moon is a sign of emotion and uh, uh, you know moods and stuff like that, so moon sign you'll have um, a lot of people in the same moon sign displaying different emotions or different behaviors, right? And this is where the Western Zodiac struggles to um, uh, comprehend as to how two scorpions are so different uh, while they are born on the same day. Uh, You know, why are they so different? And that is where our astrology can kind of uh, align that to the moon sign because the moon's behaviors are dictated by the moon. And our Zodiac system is also based on the time of birth. Uh, your time of birth is very, very important in positioning your zodiac. Wow. Right? Yeah. Right? So it's not like you're born on, uh, let's say, 2nd Feb and you are uh, 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 whatever zodiac sign, you know. It's not like that. It's not as simple as that. It's based on the time of birth and that decides your astral position in the zodiac, right? Mm-hmm. And a star is given to you, which is part of the zodiac, and you're called that. You're given a name of that star as your birth name, right? And that star decides your moods, your behaviors, your future, whatever you want to call it, right? And a lot of our rituals that we do in the Vedic uh, communities, uh, the first thing that we ask is your star, because that decides. Uh, what the uh, the priest would do in terms of uh, providing the uh, the puja, you know, the, the prayers and stuff like that. So I think our zodiac system is twofold different. One is it's moon based. The second one, the time of birth is absolutely critical in defining the personality. Are the uh, the zodiac signs? Are they the lunar? Are they the same as the Chinese, like the monkey, the dragon? Uh, versus the the sun signs, which are, like you said, the scorpion, the the, the crab. The, same as the sun sign. Okay, so you have found the same images, but in stars that follow the the moon. The lunar cycle, yes. Okay, yes. Uh, are they the same as the sun constellations? Just how they follow the moon, or are they different star systems 
that, that you found the same symbols for? Um, so they are the same constellations. Mm-hmm. And uh, the stars that I was talking about is within each of those constellations. So let's say you're born at a time which is corresponding to the Leo constellation. You know, we call it the Simha Rashi. Simha in Sanskrit means lion. And therefore, it's it's very, very correlating to Leo, right? Leo is also lion. And within that lion, there will be maybe seven or eight stars that form that constellation, right? One of those stars will be in bang alignment at the time of your birth. And that becomes your birth star. And based on that, your horoscope is drawn for the rest of your life. You know, what you would go through, you know, what are the ones that you have to be careful about? Uh, what duties can you do to avoid any bad karmas of the past life, right? The doshas that I was talking to you about earlier, they're all projected on that horoscope based on the time of birth and the star alignment in your constellation, which is your zodiac. Right. This is, I, I don't know that I'm ever going to fully understand astrology because I, I can't even see the symbols that people point to. I look in the stars, I don't, I don't see those shapes. Um, but that's all right. Um, so this is maybe trite, but like, you know, shorthand way of understanding the world here in the U.S. People say, if you meet a Patel, they're a business person. They're, they're going to be a merchant or a trade person. That, that's Patel. If you meet a Gupta, they're royal. Uh, I mean, is there anything to that? Um, yeah, there are. There is. Um, uh, you know, each of them is is loosely a map to the caste system that we were talking about. See, in the caste system, there is the, the, the priestly layer that you were talking about. They are called uh, Brahmans because they have descended from Brahma, the knowledge and stuff like that. The next class is uh, Kshatriya or the warrior class. They were our warriors, our kings and stuff like that, right? And the soldiers and all that. The next layer was uh, Vaishyas, which is the commerce, the merchants, right? The last layer is the Shudras or the, um, uh, you know, the workers, the laborers, the cleaners or whatever it is. So, loosely, the Patels and the Guptas will fall under the Vaishya class and therefore commerce and, you know, the merchants thing comes naturally to them as a community. Uh, Brahmin's knowledge comes naturally to them. I mean, they, they want to seek, they want to learn, they want to teach, right? They want to dissipate and all um, Kshatriyas, you know, they are like firebrand, they are, you know, um, they are hot-blooded, you know, um, they are reactionary, right? You need those qualities in, in that to be able to defend your land, right? So, a lot of these has a, you know um, has an ancestry to this uh, particular system, but a lot of um, you know the guptas as kings were different from the guptas of today largely. The guptas of today are more like the merchant class, right? The guptas of the old age were a, um, a kshatriya clan that was called gupt g u p t, okay. And I mean, some of the Guptas today may be related to them, but most of them are not. Okay. Um, is the word for lion, is it, is it Punjab? Punjab, is that correct? Um, so the Sanskrit word for lion, as I said, is Simha, S-I-M-H-A. And uh, that is where Singapore gets its name from. Oh. Singapore is a Sanskrit name. Singha means lion and Por means uh, city or a town or a country or a nation, right? So Singapore is the land of the land, right? So, 
Um, Lion is usually called... Um, oh, so uh, Singh. Singh. So people with the last name Singh, it's Lion. Singh, yeah. Singh is Lion. Right? Okay. And uh, Punjab is actually um, um, a word that signifies Panch, which is five, the land of five rivers. So Punjab is a state uh, which is now divided between Pakistan and India. Right. I mean, you know, thanks to the Brits. Um, but it is a state of five rivers that ensure that the plain is fertile and it's a very, very agrarian, rich soil, right? So Punjab is actually a, a word for the land of five rivers. Panch in Sanskrit means five and Panch and Ab, you know, it became Punjab and it's the land of five rivers. So the lion part of uh, uh, Punjab See, Panja in Sanskrit, P-A-N-G-A-J-A, -A -A, in Hindi maybe, it means the claws. Ah, okay. I, you know, I, so I, I knew there was some correlation somewhere, but... This... Yeah, that's, but that has nothing to do with the state of Punjab, which is the land of five rivers. There's no mm -hmm. claws and lion element there. Okay. Um, I know I I know India and Afghanistan are two different countries, but I have a colleague who's uh, of Afghanistani descent, and... and uh, he he comes from the the valley of of uh, I think it's five lions, which is which is symbolic for five mountains. Um, and I, you know, so uh, of course it's different languages. Uh, and you know, Afghanistan, India, from where I'm sitting, are close together, but they're probably you know border to closest border to closest border. You know, probably a, a thousand miles away, <laughs> or maybe more. But it's interesting that you bring in Afghanistan because that was part of the India tens of thousands of years ago. I will I will give you um, um, a story there in Mahabharata, which is you know which culminates, sorry, which culminates in um, Lord Krishna preaching to Arjuna the Bhagavad Gita, right? In that Mahabharata um, story, um, there are two brother families, right? I was telling this to you in right. the previous podcast, so Pandavas and Kauravas. So the mother of Kauravas, right, there are 100 Kauravas and this mother gave birth to 100 sons and one daughter, right. So the mother of that Kaurava, her name was Gandhari, G-A-N-D-H-A-R-I. Gandhari means that she was from Gandhar, G-A-N-D-H-A-R. And that is the modern Kandhar of Afghanistan. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay. So Afghanistan also has a lot of temples. Uh, I know there is a, a Ganesh temple and there are practicing Hindus in Afghanistan. And it used to be part of the Indus Valley civilization also to a great extent. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a political border now, but, you know, there is a, a semblance of uh, culture between all these nations. Yeah, well, colonialization is, you know, it made borders that were completely artificial and didn't know to, you know, no clan, tribe, ethnic lines, whatever the right term is. Um, there's one other thing. When you were talking about the 108 dance moves that were reflected in iconography, um, yeah. that was sort of reflecting the dance in the sky, it led me to something else that India is famous for. I am not sure if this is tied to Hinduism, mystical or otherwise, but everybody knows the Kama Sutra. I'm not sure everybody yeah. knows exactly what it is, but it's like a book of, let's just say, sexual icon. Iconography. Say the yeah. word for me. I, icon, 
iconography. I have trouble with some words. I just that's one of them. Um, maybe it's because I got sque- I said sexual and I got I got shy. Who knows? Uh, anyway, so you know, people look at it as like a guidebook or an instruction book, but I mean, it's more than that, isn't it? Isn't it tied to chakras and and powerpoints and tantric with all words that we're familiar with, but maybe we don't know how they're tied together. You, you know what happened in 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 the in the West in you know thirties, forties, fifties, or even sixties was this whole uh, movement to feel liberated, right? And sexuality was the primary, the primordial feeling of that liberation, right? Sure. So the devotion to sexuality, the dedication to sexuality, to the the thing to make sexuality open, right? So Kama Sutra, I would say, was a hapless victim of that. Okay. I mean, you know, it was um, kind of uh, what do you say? It was devolved into this um, sexual um, manual, right? The how-to manual for sex, right? Right. Um, of course, it is that, right? But that is a very, very minor aspect of uh, Kama Sutra, based on my reading. Okay. Um, tantric, yes. A lot of energy positions uh, also, uh, a lot of relations to the chakra, right? And a lot of um, relation to how a man and woman should coexist, should exist, should live. time of the year? Not always. The holidays can be hard, but there's help. Get coping tips at 988baltimore.org. Baltimore is known for its lightning fast plays. And with a Rundle Federal Savings Bank, you can capitalize on that. Make football season more exciting by opening a Goalmaker Savings Account with a Rundle Federal Savings Bank. Every time Baltimore scores a passing touchdown during the 2022 season, your interest rate will increase by 0.10%. Now that's real smart banking. Terms and conditions apply. Visit ArundelFederal.com for more info. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. Um, you know, because the focus... For the West of Kama Sutra was the pleasure part of it or the visual part of the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the focus for us is the way we looked at Kama Sutra is um, sexuality was a very, very normal and a common thing in pre, pre-Islamic India. Okay. Uh, in fact, our temples have all kinds of uh, sexual positions, right? Carved in. Um, and there are these Kajurao temples, uh, which are dedicated to all of these, uh, you know, to, to talk about sexuality and stuff like that. Very normal. In fact, um, a lot of us uh, believe that uh, women and men, the equality or the inclusivity that we talk about in the modern world today, uh, we believed in, uh, in it a thousand years ago where men and women would dress up bare-chested, right? So... Woman bare-chested, normal. Okay. There was nothing like, you know, excitement and stuff like that. It was normal. And 
um, the, the civilizational tenet of India was that you're married to one, so you be loyal to one, right? But, I mean, this is the way of life, so, you know, let them also be, and they'll be equal to you, so therefore they will also be benchested at the top, right? I'm just kind of surmising this for an audience that is that can understand this in a more palatable way, right? So that is where we come from. For us, it was a very normal thing. Where I mean, it's it's as normal as we talk about eating chips today. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, I mean, not to make your audience hungry, <laughs> right? So the thing is, Kama Sutra was one of the many documents that dealt with sexual positioning because sexuality is a way of realization of God or the Supreme. As I said, we believe in multiple paths to realization of Supreme. This was one way. Right? Okay. And that is loosely called Tantric because Tantric is also the subset of Tantric is, you know, sexuality and all that. But Tantric is more than that, right? As you will by now understand that Hinduism is more than gods and, you know, elephant gods and stuff like that. Same way Kama Sutra was a part of the sexual divination of our community, right? And the intent of it was not to teach people how to have sex. It was to teach people how to go beyond physical pleasures and realize the Supreme. Right? So in order to go beyond something, you break the glass ceiling or something, right? You need to have a given state of mind or a given state of offense, right? I mean, you can become rich only if you have some kind of finance now or some kind of education now, right? Otherwise, you will be daydreaming that one day you'll become rich. It's the same way. You have a foundational thing that, you know, this is the minimum, uh, you know, sexual position, sex that we require. But the intent is to go beyond it. You know, that's what Kama Sutra was all about. Okay. It is not a manual of how to have sex. You know? um, it was a manual to realize God through um, sexuality and for equal pleasure of woman and man. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Because 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 um, we believed thousands of years ago that the only organism that is uh, pleasurable in both the sexes is human. No other animal on this planet, the female form, enjoys sex. It's 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 a painful thing for the female, right? But only in humanity, both the genders have this pleasure kind of a feel. So. Beyond that, so pleasure becomes addictive, right? I mean, you know, we we know dopamine and all the all all the um, you know the enzymal uh, secretions that happen on, on any pleasurable experience, including sex, right? Mm-hmm. The idea was to go beyond reveling in that pleasure to understand the meaning of why that union is happening. What is the what is the divination behind a man and woman coming together to provide a progeny? What's in it for mankind? What's in it for the supreme form to make these things happen? Like that was the basis of Kama Sutra. Okay, I have uh, so the um, I'm not. I, I guess I don't quite understand enough to know when we've left traditional Hinduism and gone into the more mystical, or if there even is such a thing. It, you know, are, are they sort of one and the same? They are one and the same. They all coexist. You know, this is what I keep telling people. There is no difference between science and spirituality in as far as, uh, insofar as Hinduism is concerned. 
Okay. Um, you know, there is a very, very um, demarcated line between science and spirituality in the West, and there is history for yes. it. I understand it, right? But we believe that all of these coexist, and one cannot live without the other. Well, I'm one actually relieved. Like, you know, and like there's Judaism and there's Kabbalah, which is considered sort of the, the mystical. And, and I and I'm and I know that there's others that uh, escape me now. I think uh, I think I think in Islam, it's Sufism is, is one of the more mystical sects, um, which I, I need to move on to Islam at some point uh, soon. I've, I've tried just without success um, in any event. Uh, I'm I'm almost relieved because I've had you on for over an hour and a half, and if we didn't touch the mystical, <laughs> I, I, I'd be in trouble. But we did, even though I didn't exactly know it. Yeah, I think all of the responses they have a mystical element. Uh, we went through metaphysics. We went through the realization of supreme through sexuality, which is also mystical. Um, we went through a lot of these um, stars and constellations, which is also mystical. Temple construction, mystical again. So I think we've, we've touched upon it. Excellent. As a primer, or a primer. That, that, that's all it's supposed to be. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you making time for me on a Saturday. Um, we started around 9.20 a.m. my time, which I think is, what, 9.20 p.m. your time? Uh, no. In fact, it's around um, 8.30 now here. So I think some of the daylight savings has kind of mixed up the time zones. It has because I do podcasts with a, a guy in Australia a lot, and it was it used to be a fourteen hour time difference. Now it's a sixteen hour time difference, or I'm so or right. I'm doing the time difference in the wrong direction. I uh, it's so right now the time here is nine thirty p.m. right now. Okay, so it's it's uh, a eleven and a half hour, ten and a half hour right. difference, something. Okay, I should have. The world, so so much, uh, so much. I'm trying to understand, and I can't figure out time differences. So uh, uh, maybe maybe that's the true garden of doom. It's it's my limitations. Um, and uh, so, all right, Ajit. If people want to find you or support you, uh, I know that you're a musician as well. So tell them where they can find you and find your music and find anything else that you are interested in promoting. Sure, they can uh, find me on uh, worldwideweb.com. That's wide spelled V-O-I-D. And uh, they can also find me on LinkedIn. I go by the name of Ajit Padmanad. You can copy the spelling that uh, Jeff would be so kind enough to put it on the description bar. And connect with me on LinkedIn because that's where my startup works uh, will be exposed to you, which has to do with a lot of heritage and history of India, where you know we deal with these kind of um, principal elements also. So, yeah, um, LinkedIn worldwideweb.com these are the two places to connect with me have I connected with you on LinkedIn yet? yes okay good are. I thought I did I just want to make sure and I tagged you also in one of the posts so maybe you could just uh, re-look at them yeah I, I definitely will um and you also have music. You're a musician uh which in the last show one of your songs was the outro I'll probably yeah. do the same thing here as well um awesome. uh is that also found on LinkedIn? They can find your music there? They can find it on worldwideweb.com. Perfect. Worldwideweb.com. Yeah, that's the website. Okay. And I'm on uh, Apple and Spotify and all by with that name, worldwideweb. They can find my albums there. Excellent. Well, the, the, the correct spelling of your name will be on in the show notes. 
uh, as they were in the show notes for the uh, original show or the first show, the Vedic show. Um, I can't thank you enough. I uh, wish you the, the best and I'm sure we'll talk again. And our mutual friend, Reverend Willis says hello. I spoke to him just a couple weeks ago, so uh, and he's doing awesome. he's doing great. Also, he's got a couple of books coming out in the new year. So, uh, so all is good around here. And again, thank you very much, folks. Thank you for tuning in, and uh, you'll hear from us again next week in the Garden of Doom.
time of the year? Not always. The holidays can be hard, but there's help. Get coping tips at 988baltimore.org. Baltimore is known for its lightning-fast plays. And with Arundel Federal Savings Bank, you can capitalize on that. Make football season more exciting by opening a Goalmaker Savings Account with Arundel Federal Savings Bank. Every time Baltimore scores a passing touchdown during the 2022 season, your interest rate will increase by 0.10%. Now that's real smart banking. Terms and conditions apply. Visit ArundelFederal.com for more info. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Go, go, go. 